Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. Many of you may be familiar with the fact that the Living Faith Bible Institute, as well as the Living Faith Fellowship of Churches, stands by the view that the King James translation is divine in its authority and represents the standard by which we exegete Scripture. It often comes as a surprise to many people who first encounter our school or our fellowship of churches, first because it's uncommon among evangelical churches today to hold to this perspective, but also because we don't display any of the cultural quirks common with King James adherents, like culottes, ties, and church organs. In today's English-speaking church, it's more common than not for a pastor to use one or more translations within Bible study or in their preaching ministry preferring translations that make the content more accessible to the listener, a more pragmatic choice, if you will. Over the next three weeks, we will be exploring the arguments related to the use of the King James and why it, opposed to other versions, is the infallible Word of God. In today's episode, we will be specifically addressing the internal evidence for why the King James is that preserved text. Now, today we have Pastor Alan Shelby of Harvest Baptist Church, professor of the Manuscript Evidence course in LFBI. And so, Alan, I want to thank you and welcome you to the show. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's good, good to have you here. So I want to start by just simply asking you if you'd be willing to frame the conflict surrounding inspiration specifically. And so I'm going to start by reading this verse from Paul to Timothy, from 2 Timothy, that I think that gives us insight. And then I'm going to have you define for us what the word inspiration means, because that's really probably where we should start. Paul says in 2 Timothy uh, 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And so what does the word inspiration mean? So when I was in Bible college, then my theology professor, as we studied bibliology, that area of theology dealing with the Bible itself, uh, said that inspiration took place at the point where the pen touched the paper. Mm. Now, there, even while I was there that same year, there were some students in the grad school who followed that to its logical conclusion, meaning we don't have anything inspired today. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kicked those students out. They would not really? give them a diploma because to graduate from that school, you needed to believe in inerrancy of the Bible. The Bible was without error. Um, But if we don't have the inspired word today, if we don't have something that was inspired, well, then how can you uh, insist on inerrancy? Mm -hmm. So they followed it to the logical conclusion. I think that um, last time I saw Brett Bartlett, he was talking about a college that we know about that recently sent out a letter and clarified to everyone. And they kind of built upon that. They said, look, inspiration took place at the point where the pen touched, you know, the stylus touched Mm -hmm. the um, papyrus. Mm -hmm. And then it expired when that original document was destroyed. They were were that forthright. Yes, they were that clear on it Mm -hmm. so that everyone understood. So it was not until after I got out of Bible college that I, you know, kind of looked back on that and 
was moment of reflection mm-hmm. to say, okay, here's what here's what my professor said. And he said he got it from B.B. Warfield, mm-hmm. particular theolo- Princeton theologian of ancient days, mm-hmm. who's otherwise good conservative right. um, scholar and, uh, and theologian. So he got it from B.B. Warfield, and I thought, well, I mean, you might as well say B.B. King. <laughs> because if I'm looking for a definition, I don't need to rely on human opinion. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's here's what I did. Okay, I I thought you know I need to be consistent with what I believe and what I teach others. So, I if I believe the Bible is the mind of God for man today, then it's self defining and self interpreting, and that means I can rely on the consistency of God, and that means that I can follow the law of first mention. So I thought, okay, let me do the work that apparently BB. Warfield did not do. Mm-hmm. And where is the first place that the word inspiration is used? So in, in Job chapter 32, and um, verse 8 is what I want, but I'll read the verse before and after to get more of a context of the argument that Job is making. Okay. Verse 7, I said, days should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom, but... There is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty, that is what gives humanity understanding. Mm -hmm. So it's separate divine revelation. The inspiration of the the Almighty gives that. Therefore, verse 9, great men are not always wise, neither do the aged understand judgment. Mm. So that gave me a the beginnings of the definition of what inspiration actually is. It is the act of God getting understanding to the spirit of man. Mm. And when I go through the rest of the Bible then, I can outline seven particular stages that kind of goes through in, in terms of inspiration. Mm-hmm. But you know, for our purposes of what we're talking about, Today, um, inspiration, God gets understanding to man's spirit. It is divine revelation, which is considered a word from God. And sometimes it was written down afterwards, and sometimes it was not. So Job itself talks about one of those seven ways, which was through night visions. Mm-hmm. Pretty much all the other theologians besides us uh, would say that inspiration had to do with something that's written. Mm-hmm. But as I sort through the Bible and I look look for example, specific um, precept, there are only three times that I can find, and maybe maybe you've, you can remind me or come up with some other ones, but only three times that I can find that inspiration actually had to do with physically writing. Hmm. So Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10 says, And the Lord delivered unto me two tables of stone written with the finger of God, and on them was written according to all the words which the Lord spake with you in the mount out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. 
Mm-hmm. Now, it's very closely tied, I think, together to inscripturation because he does talk about words that were spoken, strictly speaking. That, mm-hmm. that would be the inspiration. Second time, though, that we might say, okay, maybe, maybe it had to do with writing. Daniel chapter 5, verse 5, in the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick which they had plundered from the temple right upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote mhm and of course they called daniel in to translate that writing yeah so they could get god's word in their language mm-hmm. um and then the last time would be john chapter 8 john chapter 8 verses 6 and 8 verse 6 This they said, tempting Jesus, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. Verse 8, and again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So the Greek words, which is what all the theologians go back to in that verse that you read, 2 Mm -hmm. Timothy 3.16, means God breathed. Yeah. Breathed by God. But how did he do that? Well, to know how he did that, we've got to go from Job 32 to 2 Peter chapter 1. So now if I go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 tells us exactly how it was done. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Oh, here's what happened. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That is descriptive of inspiration. And I think it tells us exactly what inspiration means. Yeah. So then to to summarize that, our position would be that God's word came to man. It was spoken to man. It was Holy Spirit interpreted in man. And um, some of that was captured and written down. Uh, But the power and the inspiration itself is in the breath of God, in the voice of God. It's not necessarily just what was captured on, on the paper itself. Right. So strictly speaking, Inspiration is that divine special revelation. Mm-hmm. It's a one-off thing. It's supernatural. Uh, it is what it is. And yes, some of those were written down. Mm. And so with that, I guess, in contrast to what the scholars say, I, I think I feel like I should ask you, does inspiration expire? Because what they're suggesting is that because those original autographs have long since disappeared— uh, does something happen to inspiration? Does it does it die? Does it expire? Right. See, this is the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, because while some conservative um, theologians would still say that inspiration resided only with the original autograph, mm-hmm. um, other scholars not saved, and I will say ones at the higher level of um, their academic learning, mm-hmm. uh, even in conservative theological movements, would say, you know, we don't, we don't know that there was only one original. 
I mean, what was the original? And we don't know that there wasn't mistakes in the original. You know, if uh, Paul's dictating to Tertius and he's got wax in his ears that day and Paul mm -hmm. says, akuo, which means to hear, well, what if he heard oscruo? And so automatically, <laughs> it, you know, it's it's just from that. So in, in uh, and yet here's, you know, here's what we're faced with, I think, is the bottom line. Mm -hmm. In the Bible, we are never given an example of textual criticism. Yeah. There is no can you, example can you define of that? that. Textual criticism is when someone acts as a critic on the available manuscript text to decide which reading among different manuscript witnesses mm -hmm. should be considered what the original author said and the original hearers would have heard. Right. Which reading is it? So yeah. a textual critic, is they're putting together primarily the Hebrew text of the Old Testament and the Greek text in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And they're putting that together. Okay, but so here's Moses starts writing in 1450 BC. Mm -hmm. John stops writing in 96 AD. Mm -hmm. And nowhere in there, not, not even from Jesus, who lives nearly 15 centuries after Moses originally wrote it. And that was so it had been copied and recopied and copied right. and recopied. And it had gone through an entire destruction of the temple and of the mm -hmm. Levitical system um, at under Nebuchadnezzar. Right. And yet... There's there's no saying. Well, you know, you you know, you kind of need to sort this out. You need to. Is it this or is it that? You know, we got several things running around here, and mm -hmm. the Essenes down in Qumran. You know, they got their own thing going because they don't trust you guys up here. Well, I don't trust you either, but I'm up here. But you know, we got to figure out from this. So there's no example of textual criticism, and that is because the Levitical priests were practicing textual preservation all along. Mm -hmm. So God was operating through the priests who were scribes through whatever else was done to ensure that the inspiration that had been captured out of the air and put on, onto paper, as it were, mm -hmm. and became inscripturated and was now scripture, that what they needed was preserved for them over time. So mm. not only did the chief priests and the elders have Scripture, because Jesus calls them to account mm -hmm. for their Scripture. That's true. Uh, but the disciples had Scripture. Timothy had Scripture. And they were not textual critics of that Scripture, which had come down to them and which they had in their... Yeah, possession. you don't hear any of the disciples skirmishing about translations or about, you know, this text versus that text. It was agreed upon, is what you're saying. Right. Is that they had they were in agreement. Even as Jesus is is living and breathing, this is not a problem uh for them as they go out and teach in the countryside. Right. And the skirmish was over interpretation. Mm-hmm. So the, the today's conversation, I really wanted to focus on this issue of inspiration and preservation throughout time, even into the transcripturation, right? That's how you refer to it as transcripturation or that, that, that transcription process. 
because I want to set us up for a, a broader conversation about translation in the other episodes. So when we say preservation, we mean God preserving his divine words, even through the process of transcription and translation. That's how we see preservation, is the, is the consistent superintendence over God's word throughout time, even to today. Uh, could you make an argument for why we should believe that God has provided us a divinely inspired translation itself? Okay, so in building up a case to that, mm -hmm. you had because you had asked the question about whether or not did inspiration expire. Right. Was there an expiration date on inspiration? Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I would say that for our purposes, the questions are: Did God Himself breathe into the men who breathed out that divine revelation? Mm -hmm. And we would say He did. Then did the Holy Spirit continue to superintend that process so that what was written down was actually sacred scripture, meaning it was a set-apart, accurate record of the revelation mm -hmm. that God had given to the Spirit of man? And then third— you know, if the if the Holy Spirit was involved in that process at the beginning, then is is He involved also in the process of bringing that scripture into any other language? Right. And if so, how? Now I will say yes, He is. Mm -hmm. So you can always count on the consistency of God. Mm -hmm. When I move on then from inspiration and inscripturation to preservation, preservation means the act of keeping something from corruption. Right. So inspiration, the act of God and giving understanding to the spirit of man. Mm -hmm. Inscripturation, that is put down on paper in such a way, it's sacred writing now. So yeah. it was set apart Capturing what was yes, inspired. to capture the way God wanted it captured. Yeah, yeah. So Holy Spirit involved in that. Preservation would mean that from there, it is simply not corrupted. Now, I would say that we can know from the doctrine of providence that, it, that preservation is true. Mm. I know God's word was successfully preserved because I know who God is. Mm. I know what God is capable of. And I know what God said about doing it, mm -hmm. about how he was going to do it, about how he did do it, about how we need to look at it at now that he's gotten done. So, you know, inspiration means nothing without preservation. Uh, inspiration, uh, inerrancy means nothing without inspiration. Yeah, which is, which is a word that everyone wants to use, but then they diminish the meaning of inerrancy. They want to say sola scriptura, but then they're not really 100% convinced that what they have in their hands is scripture. Yeah. And that's, you know, back in the day when I was in Bible college, mm -hmm. then there was a book that came out called The Battle for the Bible. Hmm. <clears throat> but what a, what a misnomer because they didn't have, they couldn't point you to a Bible they were battling for. So they weren't battling for the Bible, but they were battling for this idea of inerrancy detached from the rest of the process. Mm. <clears throat> and we have to be consistent in, in yeah. looking at the process. And that's really the issue 
when we're addressing the internal evidence, we want to apply sovereignty and providence to, to God and, and to Christ in certain situations, but are unwilling unwilling to ascribe those concepts or those ideas about God to his very word. Yeah, and I think even more important question is, are we not willing to let God tell us in Scripture exactly what he's doing? Mm-hmm. And conform our definitions and our mind to God's mind and the mind of Christ that we have in the Word of God about what he did. But the problem is we are good Greco-Romans, and so we want to think critically, meaning skeptically. We're not going to accept it. We're not going to accept data on the surface. We are going to critique it. We are going to interrogate truth. Everybody has a an a priori assumption. Everybody has a baseline that they start with. Mm-hmm. So everyone has a bedrock foundational thing, and they're going to start from there. And uh, the place you have to start is, okay, either it's true or, or it's false. Mm. And if it's true, I learn, God gives me insight on that. I learn some things on that. If I'm going to start questioningly well, then that's the same. I'm now at the same. I've no. I've not evolved out of the Garden of Eden. I'm still talking to a snake. Hmm. I haven't gotten any further. I am still talking to a snake. So much for for evolution. So <laughs> we want to think critically. We want to think skeptically, and not think spiritually, and not think realistically by allowing God to define Himself. So we miss God's simplicity. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul talks about the simplicity of the gospel. Well, if you look at Christianity as a whole, good luck with that. Right. You know, because you have all sorts of differing definitions about how to get saved. But even within evangelicaldom and Baptisthood, we're not, we're, we are apparently not willing to let God define things for us. Mm-hmm. We have to insist on defining things for ourselves. So if I could if I could give you if I could just let me open a window on what you're asking about yeah, with please. regard to texts, manuscripts, preservation. And this is fresh on my mind because you know right now I'm teaching through First Corinthians. Let me and let me just take take this as an example. This one just lift out this one thing as an example. Okay. First Corinthians one, uh, verse one, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them which are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Mm-hmm. So who was the author of 1 Corinthians? You know, most Bible surveys are going to say Paul was. That's not actually what it says. Right. Paul and Sosthenes were. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, you know, at least we can be sure that it was written to the Corinthians. Well, that's not actually what it says, Mm -hmm. right? It, It says, no, not just unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, but also to all that in every place, Paul intended a rather wide distribution. Okay, now that we've got that, go to the end of the book. Okay. After the last verse of chapter 16, after verse 24, it says, the first epistle to the Corinthians, 
was written from Philippi by, okay, the authors were Paul and Sosthenes, the transcribers, the inscribers, the mm-hmm. inscripturators right. were Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus and Timotheus. So what Paul and Sosthenes were speaking was caught out of the air by four scribes in real time. And they are four named scribes. The Greek word for scripture is graphe. So they made graphic, they made visible something that to that point was only verbal. So we're defining scripture and inscripturation now. So inspiration came from God to Paul, to Sosthenes. The inscripturation, scripture, was made plain, the graphe, through these other four men. Yes. So you have a divine special revelation God is giving Mm -hmm. through apostles and prophets, Paul and Sosthenes in this case. And then you have the... Uh, scribes who take that, take, grab those words out of the air, put them down on paper, parchment, right. or uh, in this case, papyrus, uh, and make visible what had been only audible. So that means in the case of 1 Corinthians, there were four original manuscripts. And I think if... I simply believe what is said in verse 2 of this epistle. Um, it went to audiences, not and not just the audience in Corinth, but in other parts of the empire. Mm-hmm. So there may have been somewhere along the way that they dropped off one that could then be distributed from there throughout that church's centers of influence. So, so now you've got it going to key churches in different parts of the empire. Those churches not only share the now inscripturated contents with their own congregation, but because Paul was clear about who, he, who the intended audience was, mm-hmm. they traded them amongst themselves as like-minded bodies of Christ. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. We're going to pause right here for just a second so we can hear from one of our students from the Living Faith Bible Institute. My name is Havel Ginther. I'm a wife and mother of two little boys. I also teach as an adjunct professor at Longview Community College. And my main ministry here at Midtown Baptist Temple is the college and young adults class. So I serve as a counselor in that class and a discipler. Being an LFBI, the accountability of having uh, weekly quizzes and listening to the lectures initially uh, intimidated me and I felt like I wouldn't be able to manage that along with my other responsibilities, but I found that the accountability of it and the structure has helped me find balance in my home by having those small goals to meet every week. Um, It's a super manageable course load. I know all the big assignments in advance, and so I can start those at the beginning of the semester and work on them incrementally throughout the year. Visit lfbi.org to learn more about Living Faith Bible Institute. 
So this whole thing sets up a very important question for the believer. Was God in that process? Do Can we, from a position of faith, say that from the very beginning, God superintended m- multiple capturings, multiple graphes of his word being spoken, were they ac- accurately captured? And then from there, did he, did he in accuracy oversee the transcription time and time again? It, it leaves the, the Christian in a position where it's a dilemma. They have to ask themselves, was God there? Was he present? Did he continue to work his work of preservation? Or did it break down? And if it did break down, where? Well, so see, now I view that differently. Okay. I view it differently. I think the only question the Christian has to answer is, did God give me his word? Do I have God's word? And since I know I have God's word, because I know who God is, I know what he is capable of. Mm Mm-hmm. And I know what his word says that he did. So I know I've got God's word. Well, I, I just start with this is God's word that I've got. Sure. Now let me go back. And if I want to, I think, you know, we talk about context and context is king. And certainly mm-hmm. we mean that about biblical context. But in, in terms of the uh, discussion that we're having today, let me put it back in historical context. So 1 Corinthians is composed at Ephesus in AD 59, when Paul had been there already for three years, then goes to Macedonia, then goes to Greece, then goes to Asia. Timothy goes from there after he takes the original copy he made. Mm-hmm. And he goes to Troas at the same time Paul and Luke vi- revisit Philippi. Uh, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus were all from Corinth. Well, that doesn't mean that is the next stop they went to, nor does it mean that they did not drop off one of their original manuscripts right. at, at some other influential church at the mm-hmm. time. So there are at least four original manuscripts, one back in Corinth, three others available to be dropped off at Ephesus, at Philippi, at at other places. Mm -hmm. So that means you cannot separate biblical preservation from God's providence. Yeah. So I've got to start, you know, my opening assumption is very clear. My a priori assumption is I have the Word of God. Yeah. So let me start with that belief. Let me start with that f- fundamental piece of faith. Let me start there with that. And I, I find it hard to start anyplace else mm-hmm. because I cannot find any evidence in the Bible for having any other attitude toward the Bible than it is the Word of God. Right. So just to give you space to dig down on that a little bit. So from the other perspective, right, from that critical perspective, each time that they they transcribe or they rewrite this the text again and again, century after century, it, it diminishes, right? Uh, punctuation changes, words get changed, uh, you know, men make mistakes, and that's what gets handed down. And uh, there's an argument that I've heard you as well as other pastors in our camp make as it concerns Jeremiah chapter 36. And um, there's a story of where, where the 
the text that was inspired, the graphe is destroyed and it's actually gone completely. And God still functions in terms of, of superintendence and, and, and making provision. His inspiration and his preservation don't die simply because of the hand of man. And so I was wondering if you would maybe present us with that Jeremiah chapter 36 argument. So let me build an on-ramp to that highway. I wouldn't expect anything else. <laughs> if I could build an on-ramp. Please do. Here's, you know, here is the, here's the flaw. They assume that the Bible is like any other human book. They do not take into account the truth that it is sacred scripture. Mm -hmm. So yes, it is true with any other human book, if it's Homer's Iliad, if mm -hmm. it is Caesar's Gallic Wars, that, that over time you don't even hardly know what was written at the beginning right? because of how muddled everything is that has come down to us. Mm -hmm. So that is true of every human book. Right. But once, if you admit at all that after God gave a divine special revelation, it was actually written down and became sacred scripture, if you admit that at all, then you have a totally different case than the assumption they make about our Bible. Mm -hmm. Now, the data, the evidence I can give them, uh, give them for the fact that their assumption is incorrect um, came out to us the same year that UFOs started appearing. So not 1947. Not, you know, not only is Israel becoming a nation, 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm -hmm. And among the Dead Sea Scrolls is the great Isaiah scroll. You know, it's the great Isaiah scroll because Isaiah is like, ah, you know, just one of the biggest book, books in the Old Testament. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. Isaiah scroll took, uh, you know, several meters of uh, a papyrus. Yeah, I've to seen get it. The entire I've seen scroll it when I was here in Kansas City. Okay. I saw it. Yeah. So out of that entire scroll, there are half a dozen insignificant differences with the Masoretic text as it stood a thousand years later. So the oldest, up to that point, the oldest Hebrew text we had witnessing to the original right. of the Bible, would have been about 900 AD. They identify the text of Isaiah as having been, been written maybe 70 BC or 100 mm -hmm. BC. Mm -hmm. So now you've got a thousand years. And in that entire thing, half dozen insignificant things. Incredible. Now that's not, that's not the Iliad. That's not any of Homer's works. That's not Caesar's God. It is scripture. So right. scripture is a totally different thing. I would say even at that with regard to scripture, it's just like, you know, God has a wrench to fit every monkey. So if you want to monkey around with the word of God, there's always some verse or some idea, some event you can use to throw out everything. And you can, you can always find something to stumble on if sure. that is your desire is to stumble. Yes. So, okay. So there, there are half a dozen minor differences. Mm -hmm. So there, you know, God left a wrench, <laughs> so that if you're a monkey, you can, you can be tripped over that. 
but we know that what God gave had a special category because it was sacred scripture. And therefore, it was being preserved of all places at Qumran with Dead Sea Scrolls by the Essenes. And even they were, I mean, that's not even whatever they had at the temple at, at, at the moment. Right, right. So since, so here's the other thing. If I'm going to take the Bible and put it back in its context, historically, mm -hmm. the church came out of the synagogue. And I, you know, I don't know if there was an early church. We watch Paul and the life of Paul through the book of Acts. And I'm trying to think, was there even a church that was not started in a synagogue? And when they rejected the message, he went to the Gentiles. But basically, they all came out of the synagogue. So yeah. the synagogue always had someone tasked with transmitting the Torah down to the attenders, mm -hmm. so much so that they had to have two witnesses stand by the scribe who was reading the scroll to the congregation. And mm -hmm. then by A.D. 200, scriptoria had been established in key cities with key teachers using key scrolls. And New Testament manuscripts started in that sense being mass-produced, um, or, or at least along the same lines as the Torah scrolls were. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it's not at all unreasonable or unscientific when you consider all the evidence to right. believe, you know, you know, God was kind of in this. This was kind of a special thing. Right. Holy Spirit was superintending. And that is what happens in preservation. And as that happens, so if the argument is that there, you know, we're frail human beings, there are differences in every, on all the manuscripts. There are no two manuscripts that agree. Okay. But the problem is not unintentional accidents. I mean, the unintentional accidents are kind of obvious. Mm -hmm. Those are not the problem. And they're not the problem when you consider the difference between the King James and other versions today. The problem is not the different readings because of unintentional accidents. The problem is the intentional corruptions by heretics in the first and second century mm -hmm. that was then passed on and passed down and became um, enshrined in the recensions of Origen and Alexandria right. and others right. and mixed with Gnosticism and other things so that um, they didn't add necessarily new things in. They wrote their own books for that because they wanted the royalties. Right. So there's the pseudepigrapha. There, right. There's the Gospel of Thomas. Mm -hmm. There's the Gospel of Judas. We often refer to these as like the Alexandrian texts because they came from that Gnostic region where there's right. lots and of so, false teachers. So, so they're putting. So they they stuff they wanted to add. They wrote their own book to do because mm -hmm. then they could sell it. Mm -hmm. But what they did with true scripture then was to take out of it remove from it the things that contradicted their knowledge and their teaching and their beliefs. Mm -hmm. They were purposing to defraud the text. Yes. And, and those things are the problem. Mm -hmm. So the solution, I think, is um, to be willing to submit your thinking to the example God gives, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 36. Mm -hmm. Because I think in Jeremiah 36, you have... An example of 
almost all of the process from beginning to end in verse 1. And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord. That's inspiration. Mm -hmm. that, is, that is, strictly speaking, that's revelation. It came to him. So that's a divine special revelation. Mm -hmm. Saying, so now at the point Jeremiah tells this to the scribe, it's inspiration. But saying, take thee a roll of a book and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel. So I, God breathed, I breathed into you. So you could breathe out and the scribe could take it and write it down mm -hmm. uh, against Israel and Judah and against all the nations from the day that I spoke unto thee from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity. Uh, in their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord. So there is what started off as divine special revelation, passing into, into inspiration and now inscripturation. Mm -hmm. uh, so he did that, wrote all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. Okay, now go down to verse 17. Somebody's interrogating, so critical thinkers, they're going to interrogate the situation. <laughs> critical right. theory. Yeah. They, they call, uh, you know, they, they uh, set up a select committee to investigate. And they don't quite want to get to Jeremiah yet. They want to get all the dirt on him before they call him in. So they, they subpoena Right. The scribe. Mm -hmm. So Baruch comes in verse 17. They ask Baruch, saying, Tell us now, how didst thou write all these words at his mouth? Then Baruch answered them, He pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Pretty straightforward. I'm, I mean, duh. That was the process. <laughs> right. And it, and it looks too human to us because we think it ought to be some type of ecstatic, you know, manuscript from outer space has to be her delivered hermetically sealed. Yeah, and they think that way because they saw what the words did to the people. Yes. The evidence of it being divine is in how people responded to it. Yes. So then the conclusion would be, well, there has to be some sort of, you know, this this had to have come in some sort of bizarre freak package from from the heavens. Yeah, yeah. Right. And in and in one sense it is verbal dictation. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily in in God speaking to Jeremiah, but more in Jeremiah right. saying, write this down. Right. Uh, so the Lord Lord made a command to the prophet, that's revelation. The prophet, super supernatural manner of reception, speaks out of his mouth what what God has put in his mouth, that's inspiration. Um then, it didn't mean the prophet lost his personality. Didn't mean he lost his vocabulary. Mm -hmm. um, he was the ship, and he was supernaturally blown into by the Spirit of God, mm -hmm. which is inspiration, which yeah, is exactly good. the same thing Peter told us. The prophets spake as they were 
blown by the Spirit right. as they were moved by the Holy Ghost mm. just to prove. So now down in verse 20, just to prove the permanence and the validity of God's word once it comes out, even after it is messed with by man. Then we just keep reading here in the account in Jeremiah. Was there an original text? I mean, what what happened? What happens if that initial text is attacked early on? Mm-hmm. Well, verse twenty says, and they went in to the king into the court, but they laid up the roll, so the the book of Jeremiah, right, in the chamber of Elisha the scribe, and told all the words in the ears of the king. So the king sent Jehudi Jehudi to fetch the roll, and he took it out of. Elishma, the scribe's chamber. And Jehudai read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes, which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudai had read three or four leaves, he cut it with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. He was not happy with with what he was reading. (laughs) Right. So uh, it's attacked early on by people who don't believe what's being said Mm -hmm. and have a different reality they are operating by. So, okay, Alan, your your God is big enough to give his word. Uh, He is great enough to inspire his original message. What about the scribes? I mean, what about all the competing Christianities, as Bart Ehrman would call all them, all the competing Christianities for orthodoxy? You know, we only call them orthodox because they won. Mm. But these other ones that didn't believe Jesus was God or this or that, well, they were Christians. They just happened to not win. But if they had won, they'd be orthodox and you'd be a heretic. I mean, that's how twisted yeah. you get when you do not start at the right spot with with the right assumption. Mm-hmm. You get so twisted later on. That's why I just, I can't go there. But, you know, they'll bring up, what about the intervening thousands of years? What about the copies and copies of copies? After you get through transmission, do you still have preservation? We know there are variations in manuscripts. And and it, we know that it was being actively corrupted by heretics. And do we dismiss all these facts because they seem contradictory, they confuse us? Well, no, because the Bible actually defines that situation also. If I go down in verse uh, 27, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after that the king had burned the roll and the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah. So the word of the Lord comes again saying, take thee another roll and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, hath burned. Actually, Jehudai did that, but you know, buck stops with the dude sitting on the throne yeah, that's who was right the there at the time. And thou shalt say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, thus saith the Lord, thou hast burned this roll, saying, why hast thou written therein? Saying, the king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land and shall cause to, cause, uh, to cease from thence man and beast. So, so it's like, okay, 
You know, it was wiped out. It was gone. You know, it was originally in, in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. And how can I believe that I still have God's words that are definitely for me? What do you do with the words in italics in a King James Bible? Well, the italicized words represent words in English that are not there, honestly, not there in the Hebrew or the Greek, but have to be added to get the same sense in the English. So they're, they're all honest about that. Uh, but, okay, verse, verse 32. Then took Jeremiah another roll, gave it to Baruch the scribe, son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book, which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, hath, had burned in the fire, and there were added besides the italics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there Bad. were added besides unto them many like words. No problem for my God. He is big enough. The Holy Spirit, as the author, retains the copyright on his work. And so that's going to be true for any translation in any language. Uh, so he's able to adjust it as he sees fit through the same mechanism and in the same way that he originally gave it, which was frail human beings. Mm -hmm. But because we are talking about sacred, sacred scripture, well, there's a, there's a special superintendence over that. Mm -hmm. There is a providential process that goes over that. And so now you've got what is really a chain link that cannot be broken. Inspiration, inscripturation, transmission, preservation, translation. So if I get to the end and I don't have what started at the beginning, then the chain's been broken. Mm -hmm. And you just can't break that chain as a, as a believer, faith-based, a faith-based right. view of the Bible would right. say. Right. You, you cannot break that chain. And what I've got is what God intended. So I think that to me is incredibly important. And I love how that passage sheds so much clarity on the entirety of the process and how God works. Um, in the next episode that we do together, we're going to kind of unpack more about the KJV specifically and the work of the transcription over time and the translation, even more importantly, the translation portion of this process over time. We're going to get into that. But just to kind of summarize and maybe create a segue into that next episode, could you tell us briefly how all of this has to do with our King James position? Okay, so let me give it to you in a, in a verse. Okay. Or a couple of verses. Okay. Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs chapter 22 verses 20 and 21. This is a rhetorical question. And uh, God is, you know, God is, God is asking the question, verse 19, that thy, thy trust may be in the Lord. I have made known unto thee, even to thee, Solomon, who stands hmm, some hundreds of years after I st first started making known anything to anybody mm -hmm. in this way. Mm -hmm. uh, verse 20, have not I written to thee excellent things and counsels and knowledge? Do you not have sacred scripture? A, a written record, 
a visible record of the verbal divine special revelation yeah. that you need to know. Right. And and and, and why, verse 21, um, that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee, that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth. Now, if you're reading from any other version than the King James Bible, it doesn't say that because it's just devilishly odd how the key verses that nail down the truth mm -hmm. have all been changed mm -hmm. by modern translations. Mm -hmm. So the ESV or others who claim to be informed by... Um, Dead Sea Scrolls or anything else to change the Masoretic text. And admittedly, it's a hard, the Hebrew is hard to translate there in the Masoretic text. But what they do is they take 30 sayings from Pharaoh so-and-so. And they say Solomon knew about those 30 sayings, and now mm -hmm. he's, he's saying the same thing. Here are 30 sayings. So they completely change certainty of the words of truth to I am giving you 30 excellent things. Or whatever. Mm. And, uh, you know, so God shows us how he operated in the Old Testament to give us the certainty of the words of truth. God shows us that he operated similarly as regards the New Testament text. And since you can always count on the consistency of God, then I think in the next episode we'll see how the Holy Spirit also is operating through the same way, through saints, down through history, to give us Scripture in our own language. Mm. That's good. Alan, I knew this would be dense. I knew that there were, this would be jam-packed. But I do believe that this has been um, a great summary of our position on inspiration and preservation, and I'm very thankful for that. I'm, I'm really excited about the next episode and getting in more into that translation aspect of, of what we're talking about. So, uh, Alan, as always, you're the man. Thanks for hanging out with me. I appreciate you. Yeah, well, I'm amen, but praise the Lord. <laughs> and we want to thank you as well for joining us in this episode of The Postscript. Uh, again, there's a lot here. We're doing a three-part series. So you want to check back in with us next week, next Monday, for another episode. And in that episode, like we said before, we're going to be talking about translation we're going to going, uh, be going a little bit deeper into how we got our English versions, uh, specifically the King James, and why we know that God was in that process. But uh, we love you, and we're so grateful for you. If you have questions, please reach out to us. Uh, but we want to direct you to LFBI.org because uh, this, like many other topics uh, concerning theology and God's Word and doctrine and, and how we understand uh, the Word of God, these critical conversations, uh, you can learn about those by signing up for LFBI, by joining us in our classes and getting a deeper dive on what God's word is supposed to mean to our lives. And we want to invite you to do that. Uh, but with that said, we love you and we will see you again next week. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.